the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. The weather has turned here in London, which means it's that time of year again where we're all looking ahead. The run-up to the end of the year and beyond into 2020 is going to be a frantic period for most of us. So we've been thinking pretty carefully here at Lloyd's List about the outlook over the next 12 months. We're going to be talking about a few of the big trends over the coming weeks here on this podcast. But in addition to this weekly slice of audio insight, we have some live events coming up and we would very much like you to join us. Uh, We're going to be bringing in some of the smartest minds in the business to discuss key trends shaping shipping over the next year and beyond. We kick off next week in Singapore, where I'm going to be at the Shangri-La Hotel on October the 17th in the morning for our Asia Trade Outlook Forum. Along with our China editor, Sishin Chen, I'll be quizzing economists, analysts and industry leaders on the near-term scenarios for the energy and commodity markets and taking a look at the Asia container and port sectors. On November the 14th, we will be discussing how the industry ends the problem of misdeclared cargo at an exclusive forum being held here in London. On November the 20th, we have a very busy day, our chief correspondent, Richard Clayton, will be in Dubai to dissect what the industry really needs to do to create smart ports uh, and the innovation infrastructure that goes along with such shifts. Meanwhile, on the same day, um, our Asia team are going to be tackling uh, technology uh, from a different angle at our Innovation Forum. That's being held uh, in Hong Kong as part of Hong Kong Maritime Week. And finally, the big date for everyone's diary, Tuesday the 10th of December. That's the uh, the day of the Lloyd's List Excellence in Shipping Awards dinner. I'm going to be hosting an Outlook Forum uh, that morning. Uh, It's an annual event where... I will be uh, bringing in a fantastic lineup of panelists from across the industry. They're going to be discussing key trends, opportunities, and threats facing the shipping industry over the next 12 months. All these events are free for you to attend, but uh, space is limited. So all we ask is that you register online at loislist.com and we will save you a place. Please do sign up today. So now I've got the plug out of the way and you've got your diaries filled, let's turn to this week's podcast. Joining me to dissect the story shaping shipping this week, I have gathered a crack squad of editorial experts from around the Lloyd's List newsroom. Around the microphone this week, in no particular order, I have James Baker, Linton Nightingale, Nida Baksh, and Richard Clayton. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank you. So it's been a busy week. Um, I had thought we might be talking about tankers this week, given that uh, VLCC earnings have uh, reached an 11-year high as US sanctions on Iran and Venezuela bite. Um, But um, as we record this, um, things are so volatile, I think we might have to wait until uh, next week, where we'll be coming to you live from Singapore uh, with some tanker experts. Uh, As I walked in the room, uh, the last fixture received was 207,000 a day, but that is inflating by the minute. So I think we'll wait for the dust to settle on that one. Um, For today, um, I think there's some other trends we need to be looking at. Uh, James and Linton, I know you've been uh, looking at some interesting container trends, so we need to look at that. Richard, you've just been hosting a webinar on the future of ship management, so I definitely want your conclusions on uh, what we need to be worrying about there. Nida, the continuing saga of the uh, the flag states and why they've not been delivering casualty investigations uh, as hit an interesting development this week. I want your views on what I think is probably one of the most important stories we've uh, written this year. But let's start with containers. Um, Presumably the box boys are 
looking on jealously as their, their tanker counterparts are raking in the cash right now. We were um, expecting a decent peak season this year, but uh, fair to say it's never really emerged, has it? What's been going on, James? Well, it's still all going horribly wrong um, for container carriers um, after the, 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 the highs of the uh, pre, um, pre-tariff rush earlier on the year. Uh, we're back to, back to service as normal, I'm afraid. And unfortunately, the, the peak season, which the, the industry sort of relies on to, to make its main chunk of money for the year, has pretty much failed to emerge this year. Um, Linton can go into a bit more depth on the, um, the figures from container trade statistics, uh, which emerged this week. But mm. um, but we're seeing the usual sort of fallback in, in growth demand. We, we had a piece earlier this week with uh, Drury has now reduced its forecast container throughput for the year from well the growth rate from three percent which was already down from 3.6 earlier this year down to uh, 2.6 percent so we're looking at pretty weak demand out there obviously we've got all the known problems the trade war carrying on global recessionary forces so not a great time to be out there um, I think there's a lot of charters have been loving to make um, Two thousand, uh, sorry, $200,000 a day for, for anything. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> and of course, um, you know, 2020 is certainly on the list of uh, component factors. The bill yeah. coming in from sulfur is, uh, is is not looking yeah. to be particularly good for shipping uh, in terms of the container sector. Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, the, the, the mood music at the moment is that it's very much going to be a, a cost that's picked up by the shippers and for Chicago owners. It's, it's not something that the the lines themselves are going to have to pay, well, they'll be paying it directly to their bunker suppliers, but they'll be recovering that from their own customers. Um, you know, we're looking at figures from 10 billion to 15 billion um, being talked about for the for the cost to the container shipping sector for next year. Mm. Um, there is, you know, given the money they've been making over the last decade, uh, it, you know, you just kill off the entire sector if it was expected to pay for that itself. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. So, Lindsay, what are the what are the numbers saying? The containers trade statistics that James refers to that I mean that really sort of lifted the lid in terms of what a damp squib the uh, the peak season wasn't. What? Exactly. I mean, well, it was kind of looking at the July figures. There was a three point five percent uptick on last year, which kind of gave a little bit of promise to carriers that we might be on the verge of a not good peak season, but actually there would be a peak season. But mm. then gathering by Utilisation rates and reports from in the market were throughout August and indeed in September they were low, the demand wasn't what everybody had hoped for and then the CTS figures that were released at the beginning of this month kind of confirmed that with growth of just 0.7%. Um, as I said, this has continued into September and in the last week or two weeks during it has downgraded its forecast for the year. Mm. and. Rates, spot rates have also followed this trend as well and there's not really any sign that rates are going to improve in the final quarter as well as they weren't particularly good in the peak season for Asia Europe and Trans-Pacific trades. So all in all, a pretty bad second half of the year for the carriers. Mm. A bit of advice that sort of came out <clears throat> just this morning is that for shippers this is actually good news in that you know, they're coming up towards the contract seasons um, or negotiations for next year's contracts, yeah. um, low spot rates and, and contract rates themselves, which have been low most of the year, are a really good pace, place to go in and start um, negotiating quite hard with your carrier because that's the only thing you are going to be able to change uh, next year is negotiating low 
freight rates. Um, one thing you're not going to be able to do as a shipper next year is have any leeway in your bunker surcharges. The carriers are going to come down very hard on those. They will be rising. Those costs will be going up. So if you're a shipper, you've got a bunch of stuff that you know you're going to be sort of uh, getting transported next year. Now's the time that time to go in and start talking tough with your ocean freight, ocean transport suppliers, mm. because you want to get your the actual freight element of your rates down as low as possible now, and um, because the the bunker element is going to be shooting up. Mm. Okay. So, you put it here first. Pick up the phone. You might get a deal. Um, one of the other container um, stories that caught my eye this week was uh, one of the Alpha Line reports that came out and said that the average ship size on the Asia Europe trade have nearly doubled since the start of the decade. Uh, that's interesting and probably not that surprising. But one of the things I was talking to Eastern Pacific this week about when they were um, uh, talking about their their recent uh, foray into uh, dual fuel LNG tonnage was around the size. Now these are fifteen thousand TEU vessels, and uh, you know it's been revealed this week that you know they they had. Uh, speculatively ordered 20 of these beasts. But the 15,000 size range, that was an interesting one for me because their argument is actually this is the workhorse of the industry now. You know, the 15,000 is, is is the really flexible one. And actually, if you look at the big ones, 22, 23 plus, you know, these are the inflexible ones. They're, the market has been flooded with these, uh, these, these, these sizes. And actually, you know the people who want them have already ordered them. Where you are going to see some 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 demand is really in that sort of fifteen thousand category. Now, perhaps marketing on their part, no doubt. But uh, what do you guys think? You're the experts on this. Is are we seeing a, sh- a size shift here? I, I think there's absolutely. I mean, the the, the known well, the problems with the the ultra large, these twenty three plus, are fairly well established. Unless you can fill the things, and unless you've got you know enough cargo to to, to run. Full loops on these. Mm. They can only work in, on the Asia Europe trade, so that's their their only their only trick. Mm. Um, the, the water depths are just not enough in in, 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 the, in the US trades, and the, you know there have been ones to be trialed there. They have been done, but the demand has just mm. sort of not seemed to work there. And if we put them on there, haven't worked. So when with the fifteen thousand, you can effectively. Place them anywhere, deploy them anywhere. So you mm. Trans-Pacific, Asia, Europe, Asia Med. You know, like the flexibility of those, mm. they'll last. You know, you could. Unlike, well, it will. Uh, it depends on your bet on LNG, of course, in these cases, yeah. because uh, you know it's a, very much a transitional option, but one that they uh, feel they've got a decent rate on, and, and it would seem that CMACGM certainly agrees with them at the moment. Absolutely, although they too have gone for the super large and the Absolutely, LNGs, yeah. but yeah, I mean. I think the thing with that was, was if you've got a fifteen thousand T, you should you have a far more flexibility on mm. on the trade lanes in which you can use it. And mm. given that Asia Europe trade and you know we just need to look at the rates and the volumes on that, it's not a particularly healthy place to be right now. So flooding, you know, I mean this thing's been going on, there's been this this arms race with, with carriers, everybody because of the alliance structure needing to have equivalently large ships to mm. everybody else to be playing a role in the alliance has been going for whatever the biggest ship is and this this is where we ended up at the moment but okay. I think there is room for a lot more investment in, in smaller ships now. Interesting okay let's move on from containers. Um, Richard you literally a few hours before we uh, started this you, you, you finished a webinar this morning on the future of ship management now you had a few big names there uh, you know this is a really interesting topic because ship management is at the 
you know, you know, the centre of so many of the changes from from technology to shifting, uh, you know, trade patterns to you know the nature of what is being demanded of a ship manager these days. What were the key considerations and, and any conclusions you can offer? Well, we had three CEOs in the room, and together they managed twelve hundred ships. So these are significant companies, and mm. they have to understand the trends in the industry. Um, I think the first takeaway that I will get is. Uh, we're all talking about technology, but it's, it isn't being implemented in the levels that people thought that it, that it would be, mm. even like a year ago. It just isn't there. And the, part of the reason for that is that the equipment manufacturing community is still so fragmented. It's not singing with, with, with one voice, and so the managers don't really know which of these types of technology to, to bring in. So if we're not talking about technology, then we're actually talking about people. Uh, and one of the key issues here is training and recruitment for the next generation of ship management. Because as ships change, as trade routes change, as patterns change, Amazon's coming in, Alibaba's coming in. So the traditional shipping industry is changing. And the ship managers need to understand that. Um, we were looking also at 2030 and 2050, and if 2050 is going to be carbon neutral shipping, you have to start building those ships in 2040. And 2040 means we've got to understand by 2030 where the industry is actually going to go, and that's only 10 years away. Mm. And I think what's frightening all of us is that 2050 seems a long time away because most of us will have retired, but it's not when you think a ship has a 25-year lifetime. So I think, as you said earlier, I think ship managers are absolutely at the, at the crossroads here. They're gathering the data, they're gathering the trends, they're looking at new technology and trying to see how they can work with their clients, not for this year or for the next five years, but in the next 25 years. So it's a good sector I think is a good sector to actually look forward to the future of our industry. Interesting. And for anyone who didn't manage to make the webinar this morning, uh, there will be a listen again function live on Lloyd's List, hopefully by the time this podcast goes to air. But uh, keep an eye on Lloyd'sList.com and uh, follow the links. Um, right, Nida, let's come to you. Um, now, earlier this year, you broke one of the most important stories I think we've broken in some time. Uh, this was the revelation that uh, the casualty investigations by flag states just are not being done in the way they should be de being done. Uh, in over 50% of the cases, they're just not emerging at all. Um, now, that is a serious problem, and we went into some depth earlier this year as to some of the reasons behind this, and, um, you know, a lot of this is politics, some of this is technical, but, uh, you know, realistically speaking, the flag states just are not doing what they should be doing. Now, the interesting twist here is that you've been speaking to one of the major flag states uh, operating, Liberia, um, and they're saying, well, actually, it's not just the flag states that are at fault here, and there is a serious problem. Tell us a bit more. That's right. That's absolutely right. So I have been speaking with um, the Liberian Registry, um, who has highlighted that um, a review of the IMO's casualty code needs to be undertaken. And that is because there is a lack of uh, cooperation between all stakeholders, and that is resulting in uh, not a lot of information being shared, which mm. will help with investigations uh, being completed or reports being completed. Uh, in Liberia, mentioned that um, 
when investigating uh, accidents, um, they might only have access to 70% of the information they need in order to complete the report. Mm. Um, so they have called for mandatory information being shared between all stakeholders, mm. which is uh, very different from what the IMO Casualty Code says at the moment. So the Casualty Code at the moment, as it stands, the, the wording is quite vague, isn't it, it's, in terms of what it requires? encourages... Uh, collaboration and cooperation mm. rather than making it obligatory to do so. Which for those familiar with IMO speak is uh, you know a diplomatic fudge at best and certainly um, adheres to the sort of common consensus rule of IMO politics where they you know, can't force member state governments to do anything um, and the problem comes down to a question of sovereignty ultimately. That's absolutely right. Um, what uh, we hope uh, will come from the interview that I conducted um, is backing from other flag states mm. in order to at least start the process of, of talking about it within the IMO. And that is, is, a good, is a good step. It's a step in the right direction. Well, I hope so. As I say, this is one of the stories that Loisus has really been campaigning on this year. And, and, and while their, their uh, Liberia should be applauded, specifically their CEO, Alfonso Castillo, um, should be applauded for uh, raising this publicly, and you know it was a frank interview, and I think he he he, he raises concerns. Um, this ultimately is down to the flag state. So you know while he may say you know we need a review, ultimately is within the gift of Liberia as a major flag state to submit the request to change things to the IMO secretariat, and that's how the IMO works. And to be fair to the IMO, you know, they, they, they may feel that there is a need to review this code. But ultimately, until the government member states turn around and say, we agree and we see a problem and here's how we're going to deal with this, nothing can be done. So Liberia now needs to join hands with a lot of the other member states um, in order to actually enact a review that can be, um, you know, rolled out against 174 member state governments. And that's the key. And that is also one of the problems, is that you, you would need consensus from quite a vast number of flag states in order to get anything anything passed, anything through. Mm. Uh, let's, see, let's see over the next um, days or weeks, you know, whether other flag states might be joining in this campaign. Mm. Um, because once you have backing, uh, it would be quite, it would be much easier to... To, to, to at least start the debate on this. Indeed. Well, it's certainly something that we will not be dropping as a story, and Loiseless will be continuing to back a review because this is one of the most important things that we need to do as an industry is ensure that casualties are properly investigated, lessons can be learned, and lives can be saved as a result. Uh, ignoring these not producing casualty reports is not an acceptable state of affairs for shipping. On that happy note, we will end uh, Lloyd's List podcast for another week. Uh, as I say, we'll be coming to you live from Singapore next week, uh, where we will be hosting the uh, Lloyd's List uh, Asia Excellence in Shipping Awards, as well as our Asia Outlook Forum. Details on the Lloyd's List website. Uh, please register to attend both, and I will see you there. Um, for now, thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you for listening. See you next week. <laughs>